Welcome back to Hacker in the Fed. Today, we're going to talk about NSO Group's zero-click iPhone exploit, also known as Pegasus. Pegasus is a powerful tool that can be used to take full control of a target's iPhone without their knowledge. While it is challenging to prove when a tool like this is used, multiple reports have concluded it played a central role in the assassination of a journalist, as well as many other state-sponsored investigations of individuals. Hector and I are going to break down how this tool works and how you can think about this tool and others like it. We're also going to answer a question from the audience about Hector's experience using IRC, an old internet chat tool where Hector had wars with other hackers. Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks. Former FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hackett and FBI informants participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former special agent working my entire career in cybercrime and now founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined by my podcast host and good friend, Hector Monsegur, former hacker, red team security expert, and like I said, good friend. How's it going, Hector? Can't complain. How about yourself? I'm doing well. So interesting topics we're going to cover today. You sent me over a paper about the NSO and Pegasus software, and then we're going to answer a user's question at the end about IRC wars. You ready to get into it? I'm excited. Let's do it. Let's dive right into this uh, Pegasus and zero-click vulnerability. So you sent me over this paper called Exploit Archaeology, a forensic history of in-the-wild NSO group exploits. Did you notice who was the writer on it? Uh, at first, I did not until you kind of pointed it out. Can you please point it out for the audience? So it's Donico Sabrehill. Um, and you may not know this, Hector, and I, we may have talked about it since, but when we worked together, when I was in the FBI and you were helping me fight cybercrime there, uh, Donico Sabrehill was a uh, Pwn Sauce's friend by name Palladium. Uh, Pwn Sauce was one of the members of Lulsec when, when Hector was the leader of Lulsec. So Donica Osaberhill, what, what through my investigation, I was able to learn um, that he was, his dad was the number five guy in the IRA at one point and that his father had taught him, you know, proper cybersecurity and proper measures to uh, be living a secure lifestyle. Donica lived in Ireland, like I said, and he he knew that Ireland didn't have a lot of police officers that monitor cybercrime. And so what he did is he hacked into one of the cyber cops' email accounts and sat there for years monitoring stuff. And around that time, you know, the FBI had this big case in the Lulsec, and, and we had to work with the Garda in Ireland and with the Met in England, because that's where all you guys were. Mm -hmm. um, a couple other law enforcement agencies were involved. And so I had to send out a, a telephone number and a call in every week. And we had this call every Thursday. Well, this Thursday was like no other. We we called and we talked and talked about our cases and where the case was going. Uh, and, you know, I headed home. It was probably 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. And then I got a call from you. Do you remember calling me in the middle of the night? It was like 12.30, <laughs> 1 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I definitely do remember the phone call. To this day, I was I was still surprised by that whole entire incident. You're surprised? I was fucking very <laughs> surprised. So Hector gives me a call and he, he, he's, he's kind of going on and he's panicky and, and I, I, he just woke me up and I didn't know what the hell was going on. So I, I had to gather myself and he says, bro, 
I'll send you a file. Just listen to it. And so I sat on the edge of my bed and I hit play on my iPad and I, I, I listened to this 28 minute file. And it was, it was me from earlier in the day. It was me talking to the Met and the Garda and all that. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, how the hell does Hector have the phone call that he doesn't even know about that I was on earlier in the day? <laughs> I was, I was bugged out. So I finally called him back and you know, he, he noticed the panic. Now I was the one panicking on the phone call. <laughs> and he explains to me that, uh, palladium had sent him this. So palladium was smart enough to realize to sit there on this treasure trove of emails that he had gotten into. And he simply just called into the phone number before any of us, he logged into the call and, and listened to it and recorded it. And then he took it to the one guy that he thought he could, w wouldn't be uh, a problem. He took it to Sabu and then Sabu provided it to me. And, uh, it was a shit storm the next day. Um, he had recorded this international law enforcement uh, phone call, um, all because I sent over the telephone number and the password all together. So big bad FBI agent uh, gets his phone call hacked into and recorded. Um, thank God Hector was on my side that day or I would have been pwned. Well, you know, the fascinating thing, if, if, uh, if I can just jump in here, is that I remember that night. And by then, you know, just for context here, in order for me to get online, I had to use a laptop that was provided to me by Chris and his team. And that laptop logged everything. So even if you try to send me like a coded message and you knew what my, what my situation was, the FBI was looking at it like 24-7. So when I got the message, the message was basically like, hey, I can't say who I am, but I have something to show you. I've got a story to tell, you know? And... uh I, I opened the file, I listened to it, and I was completely flabbergasted. I was like, wow, this is a major compromise. But what was more concerning to me was that they started talking about, and when I, when I mean they, I'm talking about the law enforcement officers plus Chris, they started talking about the fact that there was somebody in New York or in the U.S. that was kind of like an asset. They didn't mention any names, no pseudonyms, no direct references to me. But the concern was, okay, well, this entire thing is over. And when I passed uh, the file to Chris, I kind of expected, you know, either one or two things from Chris. The one thing I'll say about Chris is that for the most part, he's level-headed. He's pretty cool with it. When things pop off, in this case, he's like, no, nah, this is fucking serious. This is a problem. And I knew that we were about to deal with a shitstorm the next day. And it, it, that's exactly what happened because that conversation was leaked online. Yeah, no, it was shit luck that we didn't mention you by name or, or not by real name, but we would have said Sabu. They didn't know your real name, the other countries. But it was a shitstorm. I found myself on a plane over to Ireland soon after that uh, meeting with them and, and, and going through all that. So, so Hector, let's get into this paper that, that Donica helped author um, and talk about the NSO group and Pegasus. So do you know much about NSO group? Yeah, I know a bit. You know, I know that they uh, they created software. Um, what they proposed was software to deal with, you know, identifying and potentially compromising uh, criminals and or terrorists. But unfortunately, you know, over time that uh, that mission changed, at least from the public perspective. And uh, they became a developer of spying tools. So, yeah, I think they were offering, they're, they're kind of like a, a spy service for hire. Um, you know, they were using their Pegasus software or the suite of softwares or vulnerabilities in order to be able to get into somebody's phone. They, they would send them a message. The software would get into the phone through their different techniques that we'll go through um, and take over the phone and then take all the information and then hide itself. Uh, so the person wouldn't even know. 
So could you just buy Pegasus for them or how did that work? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, you know, I mean, as, as, as nice as it may sound to buy it, at least from my perspective as a researcher, I would love to kind of check it out. Uh, the reality is that in order for you to actually have access to the uh, deployment software or uh, even operate it, you would need to be, uh, you know, a very special client, uh, mostly uh, foreign governments. And then uh, you would have to get onboarded, which is, you know, usually has a or carries a, a heavy entry fee. Um, and then from there, you would get access to the software and be able to deploy, you know, against targets. So NSO Group really was just a hacker for hire group. Well, those are your words. <laughs> no, but the reality is, is that I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that it was a hacker for hire group. I would say that they had some really brilliant minds coming up with uh, vulnerability research and development, and they automated how those exploits could be used and deployed, and they sold access to that automation. But originally, they posted that this was to go after child exploitation and terrorist, right? And then it it seems like, based on what we're reading in public information, that they've kind of pivoted. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, look at it like this, right? If you are a manufacturer of baseball bats, um, your assumption, hopefully, um, is that your clients are using baseball bats for baseball. You know, the reality is, is that some of their clients deviated and went in different directions. Now, whether or not NSO Group knew that was happening, I can't really say, but that's kind of what happens. You know, they created the software and their clients kind of used it against uh, non-criminals and non-terrorists, which is the real tragedy of the story. So zero-click attack, Hector, or zero-click exploit. I think we need to kind of define that, you know. In the paper, a zero-click is defined as a, a remote, remote exploitation to achieve arbitrary code execution on a target device without requiring interaction from the user. Let's break that down. So what's remote exploitation? What, what is that in the hacking, hacking world? Well, I mean, the concept of remote exploitation is that you're able to exploit a vulnerability um, or a security issue remotely, right, on a remote device. That device could be anything. It could be your phone. It could be, uh, you know, your your work laptop, et cetera. So I'm a hacker, and I want to break into something. Um, I don't need to physically have it in my hands. I don't need to be sitting at the keyboard, right? That is correct. I can attack a machine all the way on the other side of the world. I could attack a machine that was sitting in the middle of uh, the space station, I don't, you know, I can't physically get there, but I can, I can get to it through the internet. Absolutely. The goal there for an attacker to be able to execute uh, code remotely is to be able to get access to their targets, whatever that means, right? It could mean, um, you know, to social engineering. In this case in particular, we're talking about executing code on an endpoint remotely. And that endpoint's a phone, right? I mean, a phone is is basically a computer these days. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we're talking about this topic in particular, um, all of the exploits were f- focused on attacking, you know, individuals' phones. Uh, when I say endpoints, I'm referring to any devices connected that would be operated by a human or some automated process. So, uh, yes, a cell phone is an endpoint, a laptop is an endpoint, a server is an endpoint. Um, even your smart light bulb, if you have a used Philips or whatever, that's also an endpoint you could target. So the goal for the attacker, at least in this case, is to be able to execute commands on the remote target. This essentially allows them to have full control of the device, 
um, in this case, your phone. So Hector, let me make this real for the audience. Phones these days are really just mini computers. They have all the same basic parts as your laptop or your desktop. All computers basically operate by processing commands, and if a hacker can get full control of a computer, not even physical control, but control from their computer, the hacker can write whatever command they want. For example, the hacker could write a command that shuts down a computer, or a command that reads all the messages received by a certain application, like iMessage. The point is, when a hacker can execute these arbitrary commands, they can effectively operate your computer or your phone as if they had physical control. Yeah, so if we were to if we were to break it down even further, what we're really talking about is automating the execution of commands on an endpoint, you know, remotely on a remote endpoint. And the uh, the idea is the attacker wants to leverage um, that initial access, whatever that access is, into a desired effect, right? Whatever that effect is. And then the last part of this is on a target device without requiring interaction from the user. So this is where we're, we're where the scary part, the, the zero click part comes into uh, this attack is how are we getting this? The, the, we're getting the, the, the device, the phone, uh, the server, the computer to do this on its own. How are we doing that, Hector? I would say if we follow the context of this report the the most common vector used for executing code remotely on devices without user interaction is going to be over iMessage, WhatsApp, and any other chat applications on your phone and endpoints. Yeah, reading the report, I saw that, you know, a lot of the attack vectors came through iMessage. And so I think, you know, to try to bring it to the users and uh, to, to our listeners, what we're looking about, and again, this isn't an exploit. This is just an example. Um, if someone has sent you a happy birthday message, and when you open it, there's confetti and fireworks going off in your message, there that's extra code. So they, they typed in the words happy birthday, and then there's extra codes that's around that happy birthday to make it look like fireworks or a graphic going off. So, and, and that, that extra code is being run through your iMessage before you even open that iMessage. So it renders that code and says, okay, when the user opens this, we're going to show fireworks and we're going to show confetti. And so that extra executable is the arbitrary code ex execution that we talked about earlier, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, and, that, and that's what's fascinating about this is that you do not need, you know, there is no requirement to interact with that message whatsoever. Your phone or endpoint is processing that message as it comes or it arrives to your device. Now, the idea for the attacker in these cases, and in the cases outlined in the reports, is that the attackers would identify a vulnerability within your phone that they could exploit um, through an iMessage or WhatsApp, and your phone processes the exploits and is exploited and starts running commands uh, without you even having to open the message, right? It's already being processed on your phone. And so theoretically, it doesn't even have to be a happy birthday with confetti in the background. It could be just a blank message. That's the scary part. So if you have this capability, you can send a person a message to their phone number. All you need is know is their phone number or their email account if that's connected to iMessage. And while it sits on their nightstand while they're sleeping, you essentially can take over the phone with this, right? That is the goal. Absolutely. Not only the goal, but we've seen real world examples of it actually being true. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's, um, and I think we're going to get into into that topic in a bit, but I think that 
there's enough evidence to show that this capability has been abused, you know, over the last, you know, 10 odd years. And again, going back to the report from uh, Amnesty International and Citizen Lab here, you know, anywhere between 2017 and, you know, more recently, November 2021, and, and further beyond that, you know, there have been active campaigns against targets all over the world. This is not a specific thing against American, you know, citizens. This is like literally anywhere from here to Saudi Arabia and, and so on. It's pretty, it's pretty bizarre. So it talked about some out-of-band methodologies in the report. Can you tell me more about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So if you guys have ever heard of the term out-of-band, you might, may have seen it, um, especially if, you, if you're into security, you may have read a couple of security reports. Out-of-band or OOB has been, um, has been used you know, in many ways, good and bad, you know, since technology and the internet has been the thing. In this case, the adversaries don't really necessarily need access to iMessage to text you or WhatsApp. Um, they could also leverage these kind of exploits using over-the-air updates, which some of you may have it enabled by uh, default, um, or even network injection, meaning that if you connect to the wrong network, um, you may have an adversary there listening and being able to inject, um, you know, potential payloads that can execute on your phone. It's scary. That network injection is, we. I think they talked about that during the Winter Olympics, the, the one held in, in Russia a few years ago. So that were just, those were just journalists that, that came and when they landed in Russia, their iPhone connected to the local network uh, and, and may have just, just that pure connection when, when they turned their phone on, uh, downloaded exploits onto the phone. Yeah. And, you know, but, it, you know, the thing is, that, and, and that's a great example. The thing is that this can be done anywhere, right? It could be. It could have been done at the Starbucks, you know, uh, uh, airport or lounge. Um, it could have even been done on the airplane. You could have had. You could have had intelligence officers on that plane from, let's say, United States to to Moscow, um, already injecting folks who even open their phones during flight, and if they're connected to any sort of network there that the attacker has, has access to, um, then that's problematic. So a couple of things that, that maybe we can gain some insight on. So just sending this iMessage with some code in it doesn't get the attacker into the phone. You know, they have to go through a, a few different levels, um, you know, with the initial code execution, the, the arbitrary code execution we talked about. Um, but they have to escape. There, there are some security postures within the phone uh, they have to get around, like sandboxing or pro process isolation. And can you talk a little bit about sandboxing and process isolation? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the cool thing about the phone, the, I would say modern phones like iPhone and even like uh, Androids, is that, you know, they've, they have several security processes in place. And they're not necessarily for security reasons, right? Um, some of which could be intellectual property. Some could be for integrity. But when we look at something like sandboxing, the, the concept of sandbox, sandboxing is to, you know, um, kind of isolate the, the environment for an application into its own little habitat. And it, it works quite well until an attacker is able to start executing code within um, the parameters of that environment. Um, the attacker would then need to escape from that sandbox in order to be effective and continue on with the attack, uh, attack chain. I just want to point out, and this is something that you're alluding to right now, which is that an exploit is not just a one application thing. It's not just one little um, payload that executes one thing and that's it, you're done. 
um, in order for an attacker to have a successful um, engagement against you, um, their tools, tactics, procedures, uh, and exploit has to go through a series of, um, of, of different levels. So now that we got over sandboxing, now the attacker has to, you know, overcome process isolation. So, you know, so as you know, as I specified a moment ago, if an application is sandboxed into like its own little habitat, uh, once the attacker is able to get past that, now they're dealing with being isolated to their own process, meaning that they can no longer access any processes outside of their own. They're kind of living in, in another sandbox, if you want to put it that way. Now, we're already dealing with two separate, you know, environments that the attacker has to, uh, to, to kind of deal with and circumvent. But there's, there's at least one final one, right? It's the final boss, which is, okay, so now as the adversary, we've escaped the sandbox. We've, we're, we're no longer isolated into our own specific process. Now we need to be able to interact with and modify the file system. And that would actually require a jailbreak, Right usually by means of exploiting the kernel. So what does that really mean? You know, if you look at a CPU as the mind or brain of a computer, you have to look at the kernel as kind of like the interpreter between the CPU and, you know, the the user, right? It's kind of a, I want to say the, the direct proxy. There's several steps there. But the point is that now the attacker has to find a vulnerability in the kernel for the operating system or the phone in order to continue on with the execution of their arbitrary code. And so this kernel code execution is really the golden ring of exploiting these these devices, these getting into these phones. Oh yeah, it's the it's the final major step before all the bad stuff really starts to happen. When we're talking about exfiltration, we're talking about interception of calls and text messages, and of course, persistence, main, maintaining and staying on the phone, which requires modification of the file system. So it looks like you know there is uh, there's some. Teams out there, including Google's Project Zero, um, and I think they were the main one in this one. That they were able to independently identify and, and publish attack vectors that this Pegasus software was being used against, and so they kind of pushed the information out there uh, and and let Apple know, um, hey, this stuff is vulnerable due to this, um, and then other researchers, such as as Donica and his, his partner on this paper, um, were able to find and kind of maybe put an end to some of this exploits. Um, I know NSO group seemed to be, you know, maneuvering around to different, different types of exploits the whole time, but it, it really seems like Google's project zero team uh, put an end to this. Uh, what do you know about, about their efforts? I mean, look, you have to look at, I mean, I'm a big fan of a lot of the hackers on, uh, on Google security team. Shout out to Tavis or Mandy and El Cam tough and all these guys. Right. I mean, these are all brilliant people, and 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 and, the, and I have there's there's a ton of others that I have not mentioned. We could be here all day. The point is that they have some brilliant minds, some of the most brilliant minds on this planet. By them kind of open sourcing their research, right, exposing it, uh, using full disclosure, and communicating with Apple and other vendors, they were able to disrupt some of the exploit chain and uh, and even that part of the industry because it is part of the industry actually. So Google owns the the Androids and they make Androids. I would say probably one of the largest competitors for Google iPhones, for Apple iPhones. What's the benefit of Google's Project Zero paying their exploit team to find exploits in the iPhone and then telling Apple how to close that? Is it just good guys working together? I mean, that that is a great question. And I think the reality is, is that 
even though Google maintains and supports and, and, and funds the Project Zero um, you know, uh, program, the uh, reality is that a lot of the researchers within that arm seem to, you know, to do some solid independent research. They are enthusiasts. They are practitioners. They are um, folks that have been in the industry for quite some time. And I think that it makes absolute sense for them to to be able to do that kind of research and, and you know, work with Apple and vendors, even competitors, to kind of uh, deal with this problem. It is a problem. And it's a problem that not only affects Apple, it also affects Android. Um, and I could envision, obviously, I, I'm not there with the team. I can't give you their opinion and perspective, but I can only I can only imagine that what they're thinking could be, well, if we disrupt these groups and these attack vectors, even if it means helping our competitors out, um, I think it'll 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 be a, a long term success for security in general, but it also applies to us. You gotta have to remember that a lot of these attack vectors are not specific to one architecture, right? If a group is targeting Apple and and you know using that research to come with come up with really fantastic um, exploits, um, sophisticated exploits, eventually they're going to turn back towards Android and it will affect Google's you know customer base, right? So that's the way I, I look at it. I'm sure that that you know they're more into just security in general, right? What's your personal opinion on these weaponizing these exploits? I'm not a fan of it. The when you look at projects. Um, well, when you look at the NSO group, the way they propose and the reasons they propose um, the developments and deployments of such payloads, you know, it seems like their their proposals are geared towards criminals and terrorists. That's that's a big part of of you know why they're uh, they're selling some of these tools, right? At least what they say in their proposals, from what I've seen, right? It seems like criminals. And terrorism seems to be a big part of, of, you know, why they're doing this. So so they're marketing to sell these exploits to try to catch criminals and catch terrorists. That's, that's what I've seen, and that's kind of the idea. Unfortunately, their customers have kind of turned the exploits against uh, non-criminals and non-terrorists. You're for using it against cyber criminals and terrorists, but you, you want to put limitations on what, who it can be used on? Well, the thing is that, I mean, I would rather that I would rather these vulnerabilities be fixed. You know, the reality is, is that if NSO group or any group um, that's working with, with, with governments is able to identify and put together working payloads for vulnerabilities, so can other researchers and black hats and foreign governments and bad actors, right? We saw what happened with like, you know, the, uh, the eternal blue and, you know, eternal champion and all these vulnerabilities and exploits that were leaked essentially, Right. We saw how bad that was and still affects people to this day. In my personal opinion, I would rather the vulnerabilities be fixed and, and not weaponized in this manner. That's just my personal opinion. If we are in a situation where we have to accept it, then you know I don't have any problems with it being used against terrorists and pedophiles. Now, the customers for the NSO group in this case focus their efforts mostly on exploiting journalists and civilians is kind of the opposite of what the NSO group's uh, marketing material kind of aimed at. And that's the big problem here. This is why you have Citizen Lab and Amnesty International and all these different groups putting so much emphasis on the weaponization of exploits 
and highlighting or admonishing NSO group and similar groups. I mean, I agree with you. I, I think the exploits need to be fixed. Uh, to be honest with you, I wish they weren't even the exploits. I wish they were thought of while the software was being written and being tested. I, I'm stuck on where I, I really fall on this one because I don't think we're going to be able to control how these exploits are going to be used. Um, we can't say, you know, oh, we should keep these because, you know, one day we'll need to get into a terrorist phone, keep them open, keep them vulnerable. I think we, they should be closed. But how can we stop groups from researching them and finding them? You know, I don't see how we can regulate that. No, I don't think I don't think you can regulate it either. And then plus, even if you put regulations in place here in the United States, um, you're not going to be able to enforce that in, in foreign countries, um, especially not in China and especially not in Russia. So either way, the United States has to partake in this and they have to support it in some way in order to stay relevant and up to date. If we just opt and say, well, we're going to opt out of the exploit, the weaponization of exploits, um, we ourselves will become vulnerable. You know, it, it's just it's a tough situation. I know for a fact that um, I don't agree with it. And I and like yourself, I would love if there if we reach a point where our developers knew enough, you know, security hygiene and were able to mitigate or, or, or avoid some of the problems that are being exploited by some of these issues. So let's talk to our, our listeners right now. Let's talk to them directly and tell them what about this? What, what why should they be scared of this? What are they? What can they do to stop them from being a victim of this? The first of all, uh, just to know that these exploits are very very expensive. I know to become a customer for NSO and, and start picking targets, I believe, and this is what's been reported in the news, it's it's around five million dollars. So uh, unless you're you know a high net worth value individual or or you're you know some reason you think someone's going to spend $5 million to target you, most likely this zero-click exploit's not going to be used against your iPhone. And the other one, in, in reading the paper and reading all of it, it seemed like most of the targets were people that were running old iPhones that couldn't be updated or weren't updating their software. Yeah, well, in some cases that seems to be the case, but you know, there's at least one, right, which is uh, the more recent one, the one that's considered uh, or have been called like forced entry or the Megalodon exploit, which I think is one of the more sophisticated ones there, that one took about 131 days to patch. So even if our listeners would have patched their phones or latest updates, they still would have been vulnerable. It was a highly sophisticated payload and vector, right? But I want to touch on something you said, okay? And that is that in order for you to be exploited by something like this or be targeted by uh, something like this, you would have to be on the forefront of something, Right. You know, the attackers are paying $5 million entry just to participate and be a customer. That's onboarding, right? Who knows, you know, how much more they had to pay for individual custom payloads, which is a thing, okay? You know, all of a sudden, by the time they export you, they're looking at 5 to $10 million um, between customization and infrastructure and setup, reconnaissance, information gathering, you get it, you name it. So, yes, mom and pop probably was not exploited by this. But if you were a journalist, yeah, you probably were targeted. And that's a scary thing. Absolutely scary. And But, you know, you need to have a little bit better security posture if you're, you know, a journalist or, or knowing that people could, could come after you. There's a better security posture if you think you're within that group. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, we've talked about some of these things, right, in previous episodes, like segmentation, right? You want to segment your personal life from your work life. You want to do a risk assessment or analysis of where you stand today. And what's the worst case scenario if someone does hack your phone? What are they, what are they actually getting? You want to make sure that, you know, your communications are properly secured. You don't want to communicate through SMS anymore. Because if, think about it like this. If five out of six of these exploits we've kind of touched on today all came through iMessage and required a multi-step stage of exploits to get access to the file system, the attacker at that point, yes, they will get access to your plain text, you know, SMS text messages. But would they be able to get access to like your signal messages if it requires a PIN, right? There's, you have to think about context. You have to look at of ways to safeguarding your phone in the event is compromised. In fact, if you look at the concept of zero trust, okay, which is a big buzzword now, but it is a very legitimate concept, the idea behind zero trust is the assumption that everything's already compromised. And that's a good way to kind of deal with your security posture situation. Way to scare our listeners, Hector. Everything's compromised. What a scary thought. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. All right. So if anybody wants to read this paper, and I really, uh, I think you should. It, it, if Again, it gets very geeky, and you have to know a lot, of, uh, a lot of big terms, but you can look them up. Exploit Archaeology, a Forensic History of In-the-World NSO Group Exploits. Uh, just Google that paper. Uh, it came out at the end of September of 22. Uh, it's a good read if anybody's doing phone forensics. It points you to some places that could look at the these iPhones uh, for details of whether you were hacked or not uh, a part of this NSO hack. Excellent uh, conversation on that, Hector. But finally, let's get to our question that came in that I, I chose this week. Uh, it's from a listener named Adam. He emailed us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. And he says, I know that Hector spent a great deal of his time on IRC back in the day on FNET and was also just wondering if he has any war stories from the old IRC days. People always trying to dox you, the defacement scene, and was he involved in that scene or just a hacker in IRC days? In general, it's pretty much a, a dead scene today, but he'd like to know what it was like back in the days and if there's any thrilling stories. So thanks, Adam, for your question. Hector, IRC wars, what was it like <laughs> back in the day? Well, a big shout-out to Adam because you... you uh you uh, you helped me with my nostalgia today. I needed that. Um, so, yes, IRC Wars was a very big thing. For the audience here, IRC is Internet Relay Chat. It was um, and still is a communications protocol that folks still use around the world. So the last time I checked on netsplit.de, um, there's still like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people all over the Internet using IRC in some way. So back in the days, and we're talking about between 90s and the early 2000s, it was kind of the Wild West of the internet. And you could find a lot of that drama on IRC, specifically a network by the name of FNET. For you uh, internet historians out there, FNET actually stood for the Eris Free Network. Uh, apparently, Eris was a guy who was a jerk on a previous network. And there was a split between FNet and Downnet. I believe it was Downnet. I'm not sure it was Downnet or Undernet. But the point is that FNet became kind of its own entity. It became a network that you could connect to. And I was one of those people. How do you get on FNet? How did how did you get into it? Like, uh, what was your exposure and, and what drew you to it? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the what, what really drew me to it is when I started learning about the quote unquote hacker scene, the underground, you know, I would read e-zines, or I would speak to people. There was a guy on AOL, The Chronic, who made an app called AOL. And inside the last version of that of that application, or what they called back in those days proggies, he had like a, he had a he had a embedded IRC client, and it would connect to like Fnet and other servers. That was my, literally my first connection to IRC. I think was AOL back in '96 or '97, whenever it came out. And then I got on IRC through MIRC because I was still using Windows at the time. Um, and I, MIRC was just a client. It was a very simple client. It still is updated to this day. Um, shout out to the developers. Anyways, so I get on Fnet, and the as soon as I get on, I'm, I got you know DDoS offline. <laughs> and a DDoS is a distributed denial service stack where would they just sent traffic at your computer and knocked you off? Yeah, in fact, it, it wasn't even a DDoS. And back back in those days, it was just a, D, a, a DOS. It was a denial of service. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, it was it was shortly after that when DDoS botnets and stuff came online. Shout out to Stackudrats and Mnets and uh, you know all those different tools. But anyways. So I, I, I started hacking machines and connected to IRC from those machines, and um, I started making friends. Wait, why did you have to hack machines to get into IRC? Well, because I didn't want people to get access to my real IP address, so I had a proxy through other hosts. Interesting. So you had to hide yourself. You're, you're inside this, this crazy wild, wild west of... The Wild Wild West, which was the internet. Yeah. Um, so you, you know, you're deep in there, and you and you wanted to protect your own IP. So you needed to commit a crime in order to hide yourself. Yeah, and I, you know, I wasn't working at the time. I was a kid. I lived in poverty, so I couldn't afford a BNC. That's what that's the name for uh, essentially a bouncer. And you can still buy BNCs to this day. Right? It's like five bucks now, and or maybe even less. And you would essentially proxy through someone else's network to connect to IRC. But back in those days, again, I didn't have any money. So I was like, all right, well, I guess I'll break into a machine and then I'll just connect from that machine over to Fnet. And that's how it worked for many years for me. And so you're, you're, you're in Fnet and what's going on there? What are you seeing? What are you seeing others doing? What are you, what are you learning? You know, what's, what's interesting is that there was a lot of communications. There was also a lot of idling. Oh, my God. You know, if you want, ever want to go hang out with a bunch of people and idle, Fnet was the place. Um, idling. What's idling? Yeah, I'm about to get to that. <laughs> Idling is, 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 is basically just connecting somewhere, going somewhere, and just like just leaving your computer and then just, just not saying anything. Um, if I were to visualize this for the audience, it would be like, you know, you and a bunch of folks going to a certain place, let's say a library, and you just go in there. You're not even reading a book. You're just there with a bunch of people, and you're, you're all doing the same thing. It sounds like a middle school dance. Everyone's just standing <laughs> around, not talking to each other. Yeah. Exactly. It, it was a place to just be with other people without even having to interact with them. Okay. So aside from idling, I did meet a lot of folks. I made a lot of friends. And what I did see was communication. And you start to pick up things from that communication. People are talking back and forth. Hey, I'm about to hack this thing. Or, hey, check this channel out. There's exploits being traded. Or, hey, you want some ebooks for free? Go to this channel. And so different rooms were called channels. Okay. And then each channel had like their own group. They had their own ecosystem. And I spent a lot of time getting to know these folks. But now, as I continued my, my personal hacking spree, I started to, to gain a lot of power in terms of bandwidth. Okay? And I had a lot of access to a lot of systems. I, not to go into the systems here or the companies here, 
but I had a lot of control of a lot of technology and systems and bandwidth that allowed me to kind of get into conflicts with other hackers. All right. So a big part of my time was hacking other hackers. Believe it or not, it wasn't attacking mom and pop websites or foreign governments. Who were you at this time? Were you Hector? Or were you Sabu? Or were you somebody else? Well, that, that was I was following my persona. I was Sabu at this time. Yeah. So Sabu, Sabu came to life here in Fnet. Well, Sabu came to life on AOL back in '95, but on Fnet, yeah, Sabu was was started to be known as, um, you know, someone that was breaking into systems for sure. Interesting. And that's kind of where I started my quote unquote career as a black hat, to be honest. I did mean, you learn from these people inside IRC and the FNet or did you did you more of a teach them? Learning from them very rarely. There were a lot of people in there, like like anonymous. You know how we talked about anonymous before? It was a, there sure. were a ton of ton of people, but maybe four or five hackers, right? Um, with FNet, it was kind of the same thing. There was a lot of very talented folks there, but they kind of intermingled in their own little crews. Um, and very very rarely did they socialize outside of their groups. So you either had to earn your way in or be known for something. Okay. Um, and eventually over time, I became known for just breaking into systems and I had access to a ton of things. Okay. On FNet, the one thing you have to understand is that it's still very much the wild west where if you want to control a room or a channel, you have to take it by force. Okay. So I'm going to tell you the story um, the last major quote unquote IRC war I would participated in um, that involved people that you may know, people that ended up trying to get me arrested later on when I was with Anonymous in Lossack. Okay. So here's the fun part. So there used to be a channel on FNet called Pound Chat, right? It's a very generic and general chat room or channel where you could go and just talk with random folks. That channel was owned by my friend Sequel. Big shout out to Sequel. He's a good guy. He ran it for years and he was very uh, diplomatic with other hacker groups and groups in general. Okay. But one day, another group full of like complete jerks decided, hey, we're going to take that channel back. We want it. And there's nothing anyone could do. Now, there was one person in charge of that crew without mentioning her name. There's an older lady. I think she's in her 70s now. And that lady spent a lot of time grooming young hackers to be part of like her crew. So if you showed any sort of skill and you were like a teenager, you would have this grown woman messaging you, kind of recruiting you into her circle. Okay. Now, the reason I'm telling you all of this is to give you context, because by the time that she tried to take over chats, she had amassed a large number of different hackers from around the world. And the most effective ones came from Brazil. These guys just were hacking everything. Okay? All right. So now that we got the context out the way, let's get to the fun part. So they put together a strategy to take over chat by using DDoS or distributed denial of service to take down simultaneously every operator within the chat channel, including my friend SQL. He calls me frantically like, yo, oh my God, look, look what's going on. I'm being attacked by all these different people. I don't know what to do. So I go in and I bring my own crew without mentioning names. <laughs> and we started hacking every system and shell and provider and ISP associated with these people to the point that we completely took over the channel and took a ton of those guys down with, you know, with the takedown, with, the, with, that, with that initial uh, engagement. 
So, you know, it, it took us, I don't know, maybe a, a full day of hacking to get access to what we needed. And it took us weeks to defend the channel <laughs> because these guys came back and we're talking about, we're not talking about like three guys. We're talking about like a dozen or more with different skill sets and different power that were targeting that channel. Why, why did they want that channel so bad? What was so valuable for it? Well, because their queen bee decided that she wanted a channel and they were all following her orders. Was it just flexing? I, like, I, I, you know, I'm powerful. I've got all these things. I need to take over pound chat. Yeah, it was flexing and vanity. Mm. And it was ridiculous. Now, my interest in my participation was I wanted to have some fun. I wanted to hack some shit. And I found myself a ton of targets to focus on. And they all got fucking owns, you know, what I was doing. It. It, it was one of the most interesting parts of the story. You know, I speak to sequel all the time. I'm like, bro, we should have made a movie out of this, right? Like, we should have documented that whole process. Was it complete chaos inside the channel at the time? Or did people not really know what was happening behind the scenes? It was chaos all across the entire network. Because not only were we targeting though, that group of people, but in order for me to be effective in taking that channel back, I had to hack three FNET servers. And so now your question is, well, why why did Sabu need to hack into three FNET servers? Because I wanted to do G-Lines. And a G-Line is basically a global ban across all the servers. So if I wanted to ban a certain person, which I, I had my target, I, I needed access to three separate FNET servers in order to do the G-Line. But by the time you know I had access to the third IRC server, the drama kind of like settled down and SQL gave up. You know, but it was a fascinating story, and I hope Adam really enjoyed this. <laughs> it was definitely uh, noteworthy if you were on the network at the time, because you you may have experienced uh, a ton of hacking and a ton of downtime. I'm sure Adam enjoyed it because I could sit here and ask you questions for the next three hours about it, and I'm probably will probably end this podcast and I'll sit here and ask you questions um, for, <laughs> for my personal knowledge because it is exciting stuff for me. Uh, but but I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to that sort of thing. So well, the one thing I'll tell Adam is shout out to irc.prison.net and uh, I miss Fnet, but I don't miss the uh, the drama. So I'll leave, I'll leave it in the past. I'm sure. So another great episode of Hacker in the Fed. Um, new episodes every Thursday. Please download and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Hector, another good episode. I appreciate your time. I enjoyed speaking with you again uh, and look forward to next week. All right. Cheers, my friend. Cheers, friend. <laughs>